continue on in our little mini-series on the Holy Spirit from Romans 8, and our, our verses this morning, kind of just moving on from where I preached a couple weeks back, starting in verse 18 of chapter 8 through verses 30. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Please uh, pray with me. Father, we do groan um, with, along with creation, and Paul will talk about that in just the verses below this, um, the groanings that we experience in this time. For all who are groaning, um, let us know, Lord, that your spirit is with us and that uh, your spirit is guiding and directing all of history as the spirit of new creation, the spirit of new life. And so this morning, may you teach us about this spirit. May you encourage our hearts and help us to have a perspective on our sufferings, our perspective on our age. So meet us in your word and open up our hearts. Be our teacher, um, along with being our comforter. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Christian life is one of of profound tension because it is a life that is caught between two ages, two time periods. Imagine that your life is like a rope. You go camping, right, and you string a rope up to hang your your wet clothes on. One tree, you kind of tighten the rope around, and then you wrap the rope around the second tree and you begin to pull it tight to where then you can, you know, hear the rope vibrate after you tie it off. There's tension in the rope when you pull down. And this really is an image of the Christian life, and our lives are like the rope between the trees. And the first tree is the old age, the old age of Adam. And the the second rope is the new age of Jesus Christ, the age that will come in full when he returns again in glory. And as the string of our lives begins to be pulled, and stretch towards the glory of the new age, it creates tension, real tension, which results in groaning. Because this body that we have, this world that we live in, is still very much attached and rooted in the old age, which is an age that is corrupted and and, and deteriorating and decaying. Paul characterizes the difference between these ages as the difference between suffering and glory. He says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of the present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
Again, the first age is one that is marked by suffering, decay, sin, corruption. And the second age is one that is marked by glory and freedom, being beloved children of the Father. The second age will so far exceed in its glory the misery and pain of the first age that it's impossible to even compare them. And yet this present time, this present age, uh, is real and we're caught in it. We exist in it. And we very much feel the tension and we feel the pain and the groanings and the conflict, right? Whether it's COVID-19, tense race relations, or even conflict in the church. These are all evidences that the age of Adam is very much real and that even though we are in Jesus Christ, we are not removed yet from suffering and from the reality of this first age. Again, our lives are strung between uh, these two trees, if you will, and the sufferings of this present age and the future glory, which creates this tension of groaning. And the Christian experience is very much like that of a woman who has been um, caught in the midst of a difficult labor pain. And as she awaits the birth of her child, she must undergo a very painful transition and transformation. I think the question is how do we live in that place of tension between the two ages? It is so instinctual for us to reduce tension in our life, to lessen tension. And yet, as Paul describes, part of the Christian life is learning to live in that tension. So how do we do that? It's a difficult place to be. And one of the answers, one of the answers at least that I'll focus on um, this morning is in our text, and it focuses on the person of the Spirit. The answer is the Holy Spirit. As the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit is also the rope. Our lives are the rope. <laughs> But the Holy Spirit is also the rope that reaches us in our present age and connects us with the age to come. You could think of the work of the Spirit as like a bridge, a bridge between heaven and earth, a bridge between this age and the age to come. The Spirit is a foretaste of the very presence of God's new creation in our midst. Now, I want you to notice in our text here, um, we don't have the whole chapter, but there's a Paul begins to sort of shift his framework a little bit. He's been talking about um, adoption, which we explored a couple weeks back, and the, and the imagery here is of that of family, of, of father and sons and daughters, and a, and a kind of intimate domestic setting. And now what Paul does, he doesn't leave behind that, that imagery of the domestic householder and the father and children, but he, he expands the frame. He takes a cosmic perspective and really shifts from a, a view of the spirit as the spirit of adoption to the spirit as cosmic spirit. Look at what Paul says here in verse 19. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul wants to reframe our suffering with a bigger perspective. He wants us to take a cosmic perspective on our suffering. 
And so he, he, he shifts the focus away from simply our suffering to the suffering of all of creation, non-human creation. And not, we're not just talking about animal life, uh, but all of creation itself. And what he teaches us in this passage is that our fate is bound up with the fate of all of creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the land, everything. Our fate is bound up with that of creation. And it's not just that we who need, um, it's not just we who suffer, but actually creation suffers. It's not just we who need redeeming, it's actually the whole creation that needs redeeming. When the human race sinned in Adam, the whole creation was subjected to the bondage of our sin in corruption as a consequence of our choice. Creation did not sin, animals don't sin, but they suffer the effects of our sin, all of creation. But now the suffering creation waits with eager longing, with like necks craned, waiting for the revelation of sons and daughters of God. It was human sin which subjected creation to bondage and corruption, but someday it will be human obedience that will someday mysteriously be part of the creation coming into its full glory. The fate of creation is bound to our fate. And this is a really remarkable claim because the renewal of all creation as Paul teaches in this text, and this is really a a whole sermon on its own, but I'll just note it for you, is that all of creation waits on the church. All of creation for its full redemption waits on the church, waits for God to bring in sons and daughters and to fully redeem them. The church is the beachhead of new creation. Now, why does Paul bring up suffering of creation in this context? How is creation suffering and bondage related to our own? How does it help us understand our life in the overlap of these two ages? It's interesting what Paul says here about creation. He says it was subjected to futility. Um, That's the same word that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes, where um, the writer, the preacher is his name, he says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. It doesn't have any meaning. And Paul is, is linking up with this word that, that people would know and will evoke this, 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 this sense of meaning. And what he's saying is that, that the human, that because of sin, because of our sin, creation was subjected to futility, to, to meaninglessness. And I think, uh, you know, just reflecting on this, the, the hardest thing about suffering arguably, is, is the sense of its futility, of its meaninglessness, of its purposelessness, of, it, of the sense of irretrievable loss. Like, what good does this serve? And, and often in the face of suffering, we're, we're tempted to despair. And despair is simply the loss of any meaningful perspective on our suffering. When we despair, we look at what we're going through and we just say, this is, has no meaning. It's all loss. And that's a very big temptation for us. That's the idea of this word futility. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to put our suffering in proper perspective. He wants us to see the significance of it within this larger drama of God's redemption and restoration of all things. Of all things, of the whole created order. Faithful suffering is like labor pain that will someday give, birth, give way to birth, to something that is glorious, 
not only in your life, but in the whole creation. And Paul wants us to know we don't suffer alone. This is, by the way, I mean, this is a great text for thinking about a Christian perspective on the environment. Why is it that nature, and being in nature, is, is re, when we, we're out there, is so connecting with nature is so important? It can be, it can be really healing. It's because God created it, right? And in a sense, nature, nature suffers along with us. Not only that, but nature is, is, the whole creation, this is the image of this text, creation is cheering us on with eager expectation. Creation is cheering us on with eager expectation. Um, you know, the, the kids' movie, maybe not just the kids' movie, The Secret Life of Pets, U.S., a couple years back, three or four years. You know, there's this, at the end of the movie, there's this montage scene where all the dogs and cats and birds, they're all waiting at the door for their owners to come home. In eager expectation, they're like jumping up and down, right? And then the door opens and the owner comes in and they just jump at them and lick their face because they're so happy. They've just been groaning and, and, and barking and yipping and waiting for their owners to come in. And that's the image here. This is really the image that Paul is using of creation. is like, like, like that, that image of, of the, <laughs> the pet just waiting for its owner to come home. It's just longing for God to, to bring in sons and daughters so that, so that um, all, all things might be put right. A suffering creation is eagerly waiting at the door for God to bring home all sons and daughters so that creation itself might be released from its bondage and come into its full glory. Creation has expectant hope. The creation hopes. John Calvin says, hope is the hidden strength of all creation. It's a really remarkable claim that hope is the hidden strength of all creation. There's a way that that, that the, the, the creation hopes and is looking to us, looking to the church, looking to God. Suffering tends, I think, to, to really force in us all a really extreme close-up. That's what suffering does emotionally, because it, imagine like you have your zoom on your camera, your, um, and you just, you just zoom it in as far as it'll go, and, and what you just see is you just see this little thing here. That's what suffering tends to do. That's the emotions of, of hurt or pain or anger tends to, to just give us that extreme zoom close-up. And that's all we see. And that's all we think reality is. Which is why it's so important to have a, the bigger perspective, which is what Paul gives us here. He wants us to see the tension of our life, the tautness and the groaning in the context of something bigger, something beautiful that God is bringing about. Suffering Suffering has a lot of weight. You think about it, the weightiness of suffering and pain. It's just this, this force, this thing that presses down upon you, that kind of keeps you down. But, but their glory will be heavier than the weight of any suffering. That's what Paul is saying. Talk about the weight of glory. That, that the glory of what is to come and its beauty will so outweigh the suffering, that the suffering will seem as if, like, what was that? It's very hard to imagine. But it's just like a mother who's holding her newborn baby in her hands. Imagine the pain that, of labor, and it's pretty painful. <laughs> I've seen it up close. But when you're holding your child, it's as if you don't even remember that anymore. Because the glory of new life, the glory of your child, the prize is there. 
And that is the promise that Paul makes to us. That's what the promise that God makes to us. So having, having this cosmic perspective on our suffering is, is, is really helpful because it, it's so easy to lose perspective and to think it's all meaningless. It's all, it's all lost. But it's not. So Paul wants us to, to see things in the bigger picture, but we learn to live in the tension of suffering through tasting the first fruits of the Spirit. And here Paul introduces to us the, the work of, of the cosmic Spirit, right? The work of the Spirit of new creation. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are given a taste of the new age which is to come. And this is what Paul means when he, he talks about first fruits. Uh, we ourselves, this is verse 23, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly as we await our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Like berries that ripen early. That's what a first fruit is. It's like a forerunner, a preview of what is to come. Uh, this year I had a, a deliciously ripe tomato that was on my tomato bushes in early July, which is the earliest I've ever pulled a tomato off of uh, a tomato vine in Milwaukee, in my house. Which, <laughs> and it was delicious. I think we made a BLT out of it. It was absolutely delicious. Now, I was hoping, because this, this tomato came in July, I was like, maybe I'm going to start getting tomatoes in end of July. But no, I didn't really start to get tomatoes until just a couple weeks ago. But now they're full. But that's the idea, is that the Spirit gives us like the first fruits. It gives us a taste. And the first fruits really is the resurrection of Jesus, his own body. He's the first fruit of what is to come. And someday our bodies will be like his body. Someday our experience will be like his, fully glorified, fully redeemed. But that Spirit indwells us now. So to live in the Spirit is to have the reality of the new age indwelling us. You know, we think of heaven. heaven. Heaven is not an immaterial place. Heaven is the place of God's perfect reign and rule over all things. And the consummation of all, th- the, 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 the restoration of all of creation will be when heaven and earth, which are divided right now, come and meet together such that heaven and earth echo one another and that everything is true in heaven will be true on earth. Jesus sends down his spirit from heaven, which is the place of perfect justice and righteousness. It is a place that is fully alive with joy. It's a place of perfect love of God that is like the atmosphere. And the spirit comes to dwell in us. And the spirit's like connects us to life, Jesus' life-giving body and life. The spirit is a bridge, again, between heaven and earth. To have the Spirit indwelling in us is like to have the breath of heaven indwelling you. To be able to breathe the air of heaven. That's, that's, that's the idea here that Paul is seeing. To have the first fruits is, you know, you don't experience it fully, but that, that reality that will someday be completely true here is already true as it indwells your own heart. And you can taste it. But sometimes it's like that tomato. You're thinking, bring it more, but, you know... It doesn't always come at the pace you, we, we would like it to be. The Holy Spirit is the air of the future, which fills our lungs with joy and love and hope 
in the midst of suffering and sorrow. And the ministry of the Spirit is the bridge, that gap, that in a sense bridges the gap between suffering and glory. So what's interesting is that Paul says that the taste, the taste of the first fruits actually makes us grow, which is interesting. What's going on here? Part of the ministry of the Spirit is to make us restless and agitated for the world to come. Because there's a lot of really tasty things that we can eat of in this age. And they're not all bad, but, but what the Spirit does is gives us a taste of what is to come, which so far exceeds anything that you could have here, that it pales in comparison. It's like, imagine it's like a chef where God just prepares the most amazing meal you've ever had, and he sets it before you, unless you taste it. And he says, I, you're going to love this. And you taste, and it's amazing. And what it does is you, it just, you have this memory. I don't know if you have had an amazing meal where you just, you just keep remembering like this amazing meal you had, and you, well, I want to have that again. And it's sort of like that idea, right, that, that I so long for a taste of that, that world that it is to come, that first fruit, that it increases a kind of hunger and longing and groaning. That's the idea here that Paul is getting at. So not only does the Spirit give us a taste now of the glory that is to come, but the Spirit is a Spirit, as a Spirit of new creation, um, the Spirit generates hope in us. The Spirit generates hope. Hope is the heart's orientation towards the future. Hope is the heart's orientation towards the future. Hope is the heart's longing for what is to come. Um, hope has to do with desire. You have to see this. This is very important. It has to do with the desire of the heart as it looks ahead of itself to what is to come. And it, it is, drives all of us some form of hope. Remember that our lives are like that rope strung between two ages. And to maintain tension, to maintain the tension between the rope that is, that is tied off in the old tree and the rope that is on, you need to have it tied on the, the second tree. There needs to be tension there. You need hope. The failure of hope is really to untie yourself from that second tree where the rope goes slack. And when we are in despair, when we look at life and say it's all meaningless, it's all lost, it'll never change, what we do is we basically untie ourselves from that second tree. We let the rope go slack. But Christian hope keeps us in tension. And it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to maintain because it strains and stretches our soul against the grain of the universe. Hope, um, hope is unnatural <laughs> in some ways. I mean, it's natural, but it's, it, it feels very unnatural because everything, again, in an extreme close-up mode seems like loss. But it's like, it's like a ballerina, you know? Um, a ballerina on a tightrope. That's what hoping is like as you're caught between these two ages. You're just sort of like trying to balance, right? Well, look at what Paul says here. It's very rich. He says in verse 24, for, for in this hope, that is the hope for resurrection, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And here Paul, and this is the posture of hope. On the one hand, 
Hope is an eager longing for liberation, for transformation, for justice, for restoration. On the other hand, it is a patient waiting for what is not yet visible, for that which is not within reach, for that which I cannot just demand and say, this needs to happen. On the one hand, it is an enduring of suffering and pain and injustice that you are powerless to eradicate or change. On the other hand, it is confidence that someday God will make it all right. God will bring justice, and he will deliver us. That's the tightrope, right? And this hope is not a form of escapism from this world or a form of wishful thinking, that everything is just going to turn out fine in the end. Our hope is not in our own confidence in our own ingenuity, that we'll come up with a fix, we'll figure it out, if we just put our heads together. No, the object of our hope actually is very specific here, and it is the resurrection. It is our resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. But behind that is Jesus' resurrection. That's the content of our hope. We talk about resurrection hope. Our resurrection will be the consummation of the redemption of all creation. That's part of what Paul is saying here, is that when your bodies are finally resurrected, actually all of creation will be resurrected as well. When we are raised from the dead, the whole cosmos will be liberated from its bondage of decay. And this is, again, not just wishful thinking. It is something that has already begun in Jesus Christ in his own resurrection as a first fruits. So when you think about resurrection hope, you think about hope in your own life, what that means for us. It is, again, to be very clear, it's not a, it's not a turn away from this material world. It's not to, 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 to long for a sweet by and by. It's actually, it's, it's a way of engaging the here and now. It's a way of seeing this world, seeing my experience, seeing, seeing pain with an imagination for the way in which that someday God will make all things new. Um, just recall that verse for you from Revelation, from our confession. It says that God will make all things new. It doesn't say he will make all new things. He'll make all things new. He'll take the broken things, the corrupted things, the, the ruined, defaced things, and he'll make them new. Where he will be all in all, and he will be glory. This is what glorification means. I know glory is a word we don't really think about as, as an attractive thing we want, but you want glory. You need glory. Because glory is, is, is you fully alive. Glory is you fully alive in the love and the holiness and the beauty of God in a world that's that way. And it is weighty. It is more weighty than all the suffering and corruption of this age. To live by hope means that our actions are not futile or meaningless. Again, that's the thing that suffering tends to do to us is to make us think that there's really, what's the point <laughs> as we struggle? What's the point? It's not going to change anything. It's not going to make things better. But again, hope means that our life and our actions are not futile. They're not meaningless. They're grounded, again, in the sure promise and reality that Jesus will someday put all things right. Hope means that our experience of suffering is not vanity, that things don't just fall permanently to the ground, that someday they will be raised. And I think in our age especially, right, in our hope in our political context, and our cultural context is so important. It needs to be the front line of the soul, hope. 
against a politics of despair, of cynicism, of corruption, one that says that nothing will ever change, and so what's the point? Why even engage? For to hope is to live in the world as it will someday be. I think we have a hard time with that. We see the world as it is, and we want to respond to the corruption of the world with its own tactics, with its own ways of thinking. And to hope is to live in the world as it, not as it is, but as it will someday be. It is to live in the world as God originally designed it, intended it to be, even though it doesn't operate that way. It is to live in the world against the grain of the universe, which is hard. That's the tension. It is to live in the world as it will someday be a place in which our bodies and all the material creation and all the institutions, everything that we touch, everything that makes human beings human beings, family, nation, culture, society, all of that will be resurrected. All of that will be renewed. All of that will be um, perfectly righteous and just, beautiful and glorious, because God will be all in all. This is what Paul means when he, he talks about the freedom, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. To hope is to live into the future, not with fear, but with, with, with eager anticipation and longing. And the good news about hope is, is as a posture, oh, we talk about hope as a virtue, one of the theological virtues, and it is something that we, we need to work on, in a sense. We need to reflect on and cultivate in our lives. But hope is not simply just a virtue that we possess. Hope is something that comes about in us because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Hope becomes possible because the Spirit dwells in us. The power of new creation dwells in us. The same divine power that will complete the total renovation of all of the cosmos has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit creator that hovered over creation in Genesis of the formless void, the same spirit that was hovering over uh, in the womb of Mary at the birth of the conception of Jesus, the same spirit that blew the breath of life into the formless clay of the first man, this spirit has been poured out into our hearts for the sake of total and complete renovation and renewal. Christian hope is not something that is far off in the future, but a present possession and possibility. Hope emanates from the very foundation of our life because we are dwelt by the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is at work here and now in our lives doing new things, and we need not despair. As Paul says just a couple chapters earlier, he says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Amen. Lord, we do ask that you would uh, mightily pour out your Holy Spirit upon our hearts, that the hope that we have would not lead to shame, but to glory. Pour out your love, pour out hope, I pray for any here that are struggling with despair or a sense of the futility of their lives or of life in general, whether that's personal or whether that's 
that's political or whatever it might be, Lord, help us to be a people of hope, to know that as your children, that you give us your very presence, and that sustains us. Help us live in the tension. It's so hard, Lord, but we know that you are with us and we are not alone. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.